Good morning, everyone. Welcome to North Park Community Church. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the great privilege of being here this morning uh, to preach to you after not only those remarkable announcements. I mean, honestly, watching Josh, I'm like, I'm going to up my announcement game. I'm going to bring it next time. I'm going to compare myself to him. Uh, but also, I get to preach on this amazing passage that we just heard read from Pastor Josh. And before I say anything about that text, though, this remarkable passage, uh, I want to ask a question concerning the songs and really the last song that we just sang. I think a lot of times when it comes to, to worship, when we gather together to praise God together, I'm not always sure, at least for myself, I don't always think through the magnitude of what I am saying. And so let's think about that last song that we just sang. The chorus of the song says this, there is no one else for me, none but Jesus. And what that means, what we are actually singing is that Jesus is all that we need, that there's no one else, that there's nothing else, no person, no success, no pleasure, no action that we need to perform. We have all that we need. In Jesus Christ, for he was crucified to set us free. And because of that, we should live to give him praise. That is a remarkable, a pretty audacious thing for us, for us to sing today. That this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago and was crucified as a criminal by the Roman Empire and then rose from the grave, but only a select number of people saw him, that that man is all that we need. And because of him, our lives should be given to him, should actually revolve around praising him. Do we actually think that is true? Do we honestly believe that? Do we honestly believe that there is no one else for you for me or for anyone else in this room or online or all over the world, what we all need is Jesus and Jesus alone and that he's been given to us so that our lives should be about him. Of course, there are some of you listening right now in the room online who would openly say, no, I do not believe that is true. You are someone who perhaps is curious about Jesus, but you would not affirm what we just said. You don't believe that Jesus is all you need or that he should lead your life. If that is you, let me just say, I am so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're listening online. I pray and I really hope that you feel welcome and loved while you are with us. But there are others of us, I would say probably most of us that are here, that are listening online, who would say that we believe that's true, or at least we want to believe that that is true. But it's truly hard to kind of plant our feet there and stand on that. It is hard to truly believe that Jesus is the gift that we need in our lives should be about giving this man who lived, died, and rose again 2,000 years ago, that we should live for him. But what I hope to show you today in this text is that that actually is the claim of Paul to the Colossians. This text is claiming that Jesus Christ is the source and goal of all things. He is what all creation is all about, but he's also how all creation is offered salvation. And because of that, each of us is truly offered 
him and he's all we need. That there's no one else you need. And because of that, you should not look to other things, but you should look to him for what you should, for how you should live your life. That is what this passage is saying. But as I walk through what I hope to be asking us as we go through this, do we truly believe this? Do we honestly place our faith and are we resting in Christ? And I hope to encourage you that yes, we should. And yes, we can, because that's how remarkable he is. But to do that, I need to pray and to ask for God's help. So pray with me and then let's dive into the text. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray right now, you would mercifully, the power of your Holy Spirit would enable me to proclaim your word clearly and boldly. May your spirit use my words and open up the hearts of my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, to know and to see Jesus. May we all rest so secure in him and know how glorious and remarkable he is. Use this sermon, use this, this service Lord, for your glory so that we might know you and so that we might also love others because of the way you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we dive in here, I think it's important to do a little bit of a recap on where we have been in the letter to the Colossians so far. We're not that far into it. We're only 14 verses in, but let's go over what we talked about last week. So last week, Pastor Trish took us through verses 1 through 14 of chapter 1, and Trish showed us that within this introduction to the Colossians, there is a lot more going on that we probably usually recognize when we just read through Colossians. So at first, we're introduced to the author of this letter, to a man named Paul, one of the most significant people in all of history, but he introduces himself as one chosen by God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, meaning he sees himself as chosen by God to be sent into the world for the sake of bearing witness not to himself, but to Christ, to really to Jesus as the Christ, as the hope of the world. That was Paul's vocation. That's how he understood himself. And he is the author of this letter. But we're not just introduced to Paul. We're also introduced to the audience of this letter, which is the Colossian church. And Church pointed out for us, one of the interesting things about the Colossians is that they are a church that Paul actually did not start. And he never had been there. Okay. That's a pretty fascinating thing to know, because when you look at the Colossian church, that means they are unique in terms of the letters in the Bible. Paul wrote 13 letters Almost all of them he had either started to the location that he wrote, uh, that he went to, or he had had been there. The only other letter where he had not been was Rome. So when he wrote the letters to the Romans, he had not been there before either. And Colossians is like that. This church was started actually by one of Paul's co-laborers, Epaphras. Epaphras had gone to Colossae and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ and the hope that he offers. Really, Epaphras had proclaimed the same gospel that Paul was proclaiming all over the world of the hope that Jesus offers to us of forgiveness of sins. And that hope had planted down deep inside the Colossians' hearts. And so they had started having this faith in Jesus and loving one another. And Paul was so overwhelmed by this that he had been praying for the Colossians, praying that they would know God's will more and more, that they would love others more and more, and they would produce all kinds of fruit in them to the glory of God. who would transfer them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That, in short, is what we saw in the first 14 verses last week. But what that means is that in the first 14 verses, we don't actually know the why to the letter. We know who Paul is. We know who this Colossian church is. We know that they actually don't know one another personally. 
But we don't actually know the why. And the why is important because Paul had not been there. Why of all the different churches that were started, not by Paul, did he write one to the Colossian church? What is the unique circumstance going on there that caused Paul to write this letter? Well, in our text today, we begin to see hints at this reason. And it actually comes at the end of our text. And that is where I want to begin this morning. I want to begin by looking at the last verses of our text, because they not only help us understand the whole letter, but also this remarkable poem that begins our text about Jesus Christ. In fact, these verses that conclude our text not only help us understand the why of the letter, but the why of this poem. Because we should be asking, why does Paul all of a sudden just drop this remarkably theologically rich pronouncement about the person of Jesus Christ? Well, it's the last verses of our text that help us answer that question. So let's look at those. We're going to begin by looking at the very end of the poem, okay? So this is the end of uh, verse 20. Paul says this, He, meaning God, made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Okay, so he states at the end of this glorious poem, which could basically be considered a kind of creed or a proclamation with the person of Christ, he states that through Christ's crucifixion, through his blood being poured in death, God has worked to reconcile all things to himself. Okay, but now look at the very next thing he says, which begins in verse 21. This includes you, who were once far away from him. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Okay, so here Paul is saying that this work of reconciliation that God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross, this cosmic, global work that God has done through Jesus has been personally applied to you. This is yours. God has given this cosmic redemption to you, even though you were his enemies, even though you lived lives completely contrary to God's will, even though you rebelled against him and lived contrary to God. God has reconciled you to himself through the death of Jesus. And because of this, you stand in his presence. You don't need to work in order to get close to God. You are with him. You are considered holy. You are seen as blameless without a single fault. That's what Paul's pronouncing. Okay, what does all that mean? Well, what it means is that Paul is saying that in Jesus Christ, everything has been given to us. Okay, look at the text again and think about what God and Jesus are said to do here in comparison to us. All right, so God has made peace with all things through Christ's death, and that includes you. So you have peace with God because of what God has done. You were once far away from God. I was far away from God. We were his enemies because of our evil thoughts, our evil deeds. But God reconciled us to himself to the death of Jesus. Thus, you stand in God's presence. You are holy. You are blameless. You have no faults because of God. Because of his work through Jesus' death on the cross. Or as he puts it in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's remarkable in how Paul puts this. He says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. Okay, so what, what does God do and what do we do? 
Well, the only thing this text says that we do is push back on God. All that we do is have evil thoughts, have evil actions. We stand in opposition to God. We are his enemies, but God works to save us through Jesus. He reconciles us to himself. He makes us holy. He makes us blameless. He makes us faultless because of Jesus. None but Jesus. That is what Paul is saying here. And this is not unique in the gospel. This is not unique in in the New Testament. So I quoted from Ephesians 2. I could go all over the place. This is the message of the scripture. Some of you may know that a well-known pastor named Tim Keller recently died. He was a remarkable pastor and a massive effect on me. But Keller used to summarize the gospel in this very simple way. He would say this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we would ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we would ever dare hope. I want you to hear that today. You are more sinful and flawed. I am more sinful and flawed than I would ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved, we are more accepted in Jesus Christ than we would ever dare hope. That truly is what Paul is saying here to the Colossians, and it's for us today as well. God has done a work of grace for you that is so purely grace that it is in its entirety undeserved. God has simply given us Jesus, and he is all we need. But okay, do we believe this? Do we actually believe that this is true? I think this is something that's very hard for us to hold on to. We have such a hard time with this, and it's actually part of the reason I think church and community is so important. And I mean this for the, for the people who are watching online as well. Being around people who believe these things with you is so important. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, talks about this. And he says, one of the reasons why we need one another is because the word of grace, the word of God's love for us, the assurance of God's love and care for us in Jesus Christ is stronger in the mouth of my brother or my sister than it is in my heart. I need to hear it from someone else because we so often don't believe it's true. It's part of the reason we need to gather together to sing songs like None But Jesus or Blessed Assurance, Jesus Is Mine, because I need to hear you affirm those words for my heart to believe that it's true because often we don't. Often I don't. And I, I, am, I am serious about that. Last night, so my, my wife and I uh, we've been going on very long walks at night, which may seem like we're terrible parents because we have four young kids. But I'm living with my parents and they're good grandparents so they can watch them while we are away. So most nights we're going out and having long walks. Uh, and this is what I was talking about last night, about standing up and proclaiming these things to you this morning and how it's so hard often for me to believe this. I am a pastor, but standing up here and saying to you, God has given us Jesus Christ that God took on flesh, died for you on the cross, and rose again for your future and eternal hope. And because of that, you have been given all you need. You should live to give him praise. I can often feel like a fool saying those things. Telling you to, as it says in Matthew 16, take up your cross and follow Jesus, because in doing so, in dying to the world, in giving your life to Christ, you don't actually lose anything 
but rather you gain everything. That often feels ridiculous coming out of my mouth. As I'm sure it does to hear it as well to many of you or to say it to others. Because all of us often feel like we do need more. And like others need more as well. We often feel like we need success. Like we need comfort. Like we need pleasure. Like we need sex. Like we need a spouse. We need children. We need more. But guys, the message of the Bible is that while those things are good, there's nothing wrong with those things. What we truly need is Jesus. And he's been given to you. Okay, here's the thing. Because we have a hard time believing this, what often ends up happening is that we do look to things outside of Jesus for other factors in order to feel assured of God's love for us. Because we struggle to feel assured in Christ, we try to find other things that make us feel as if God loves us. And almost always, whenever we do this, it's the things that our culture assumes are blessings from God. And so we start looking to our success to look to how comfortable God has made our lives or if he's given us the things like a spouse or children or we look to our abilities to please God according to ways that we think would make him happy. So we look at how disciplined we are and how religious we are and how good our Bible reading is or how we treat other people. And these things become the things that give us assurance, which means not only does something else dictate how we live, it's not Jesus, it's these other things, but it also means that some of you in this room actually feel very assured because of these other factors. You think you're fine because of your success, because of your comfort, because of how disciplined you are, while others of you feel like garbage because you feel like you never measure up. You can never do enough. And you look at yourself and say, I, I could never earn this. I'm not good enough. But this is because we're looking outside of Jesus. It's because we're trying to make ourselves worthy of his love. But the gospel says that there is no one in this room who deserves Jesus' love and his salvation. We are all, and this definitely includes me, we are all unworthy. No one deserves this grace, but there is also no one. There is no one in this room. And please, if you feel as if you do not deserve this, I am speaking to you. There is no one in this room that God does not see as worth so much that he refused his son. We are all unworthy of his love, but we are worth so much to God that his love has been poured out for us through Jesus. That's for all of us. Do we believe that? Do we believe that that is true? That can be so hard for us to truly affirm, and it has been since the beginning. Because that seems to be the exact problem the Colossians were going through as well. They were a church that was in danger of drifting away from the assurance given to us in Christ because they were looking to other things. See, look at the way that our text finishes in verse 23 here. So Paul, after explaining all the remarkable things that God has done for us through Jesus, he says this, but you must continue to believe this truth. The, the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Yes, you must continue to believe that truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, what we need has been given to us in Jesus. So don't go looking for other means of being right with God outside of Jesus. 
Don't go living in ways that are contrary to Jesus or that are addition to the grace offered to us in Jesus. You see, it actually seems in the, in the area where the Colossians lived, there was a group of teachers who were advocating for ways of living that were either opposed to or in addition to Jesus. And we'll get way more into this as we go throughout the letter. But let me just read a couple places where this seems to come up. Paul says, so don't let anyone capture with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Or later he says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come and Christ himself is that reality. Now we'll dive way more into that. But this church that Paul had heard about from Epaphras was in danger of drifting away from Jesus because others were saying to them, yeah, Jesus is good, but he's not all you need. He's not the only thing you need. You can't rely on him that much. It's not none, but Jesus. As I've been trying to explain, I think it's easy for that to sound right to us as well. Because it does sound kind of crazy, right? To stand up here and say, there's no one else for you, but Jesus. That's all that you need. That you don't need to fulfill your dreams. You just need Jesus Christ and he's been offered to you. That you don't need to find success. You just need Jesus and he's been given to you. That you don't need the comforts of life. You only need Jesus. That we all can truly take up our cross and follow him because through him, we've been given everything we need. That sounds crazy. It sounds foolish. And yet it's Paul's claim. It's the claim of the scriptures, the claim of the New Testament. It's why Paul wrote this letter, but it's also why he began our text with this remarkable poem about Jesus. Because the only way we can make these claims is if we truly grasp how remarkable he is. If we truly see the sufficiency and the supremacy of our Lord and Savior. And that's why Paul all of a sudden just drops this on the Colossian church because he's saying, this is who we're talking about. And if you get him, why would you ever look outside of him? So now I want to return to that poem and I want to walk through it so we get a vision of who Jesus is. Okay, so it begins in verse 15 with Paul saying this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And let's just stop there for a moment to see what he is saying there. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, which perhaps to us just sounds as if he's saying that Jesus is a human like the rest of us, since humanity, male and female, as it says in Genesis 1, is created in the image of God or according to his likeness. But there actually is a subtle difference here between what Paul is saying and what is said in Genesis 1. And I'm not just making this up. This is something that theologians have thought for about 2,000 years. Because in Genesis 1, it actually does not say that humans are the image of God, but rather that we are created according to the image of God or in the image of God. In other words, we are created after the pattern of the one who is the true image of God. We are like a reflection based on the true and perfect model of God. Humans were actually created to be like or to reflect the true image of God. And here we are seeing who that is. It's Jesus Christ. Paul is thus proclaiming the beginning of this poem that Jesus Christ is the one that all humanity was always meant to be like. He is actually the goal of all of human history. He is the reality that we were created to reflect. He is the image, the true image of the invisible God. But more than that, 
Look what it says next. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Jesus is therefore the means, the person through whom all things have come into existence, which means that Jesus is both the agent of God and he's God himself. He's like the wisdom of God. How can you separate God's wisdom from himself? It's both an agent and it is God himself. That's who Jesus is for us through him, that everything that has ever been created has come into existence, which means he himself cannot be a created thing. As it said next, he made the things we can see and the things we can't see. And just in case you thought you could come up with something that could exist apart from him, Paul keeps going and says, such as thrones, such as kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world, everything was created through him and, and this is so important, and for him. It is not just that God is the source of all things. It is not just that Jesus is what everything flows out of. Everything is to turn back and come to him. Everything came through him and all of it bows down before him. He is not just the source. He is the telos of everything. He is the goal of all of creation for every throne, every kingdom, every ruler, every authority, every institution, every family, every life is his. There is not a square inch. This is what a man named Abraham Kuyper once said. There is not a square inch over the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ does not declare mine. Every aspect of creation, every aspect of your life, everything, not only finds its source in Jesus Christ, but its goal. For he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. That's how Paul begins this remarkable poem. He begins by declaring that Jesus Christ, who walked the earth, was born to a woman 2,000 years ago, was executed at the hands of his own people and the Roman Empire, was not just an important person or even a God, but that he is the God. He is Yahweh himself. He is the same God who parted the Red Sea. He is the same God who filled the temple. He is the goal of our lives, the source of all creation. He is the telos of all things and the sustainer of all that we see. He therefore must be the one that our lives should revolve around. If that's who he is, why would we ever look elsewhere for how we should live? He should be the one we should live to praise. Okay, the amazing thing is that's just the first section of the poem. That's just the first half. And the second half of the poem actually parallels the first because it moves to show that not only is Jesus the source and goal of all creation, he's also the source and goal of all new creation. Not only is he over all thrones and dominions and powers and authorities, but he's also over the church. Not only is he the one who made all things, he is also the one who is making all things new. For not only is he the source of life, but he died and rose again to be the source of new life. Because, okay, look, look at verse 18 now. It says, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. So he's not only the image of God, he's also the head of the church. And he is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. And there you can see the direct parallelism between the two halves of the hymn. Whereas in verse 15, he is said to be supreme over all creation. Here, he is supreme over all who rise from the dead. Meaning, as I just said, he's over creation and he's over new creation. Our whole existence, our hope for the future is found in him. And thus, Paul explains at the end of verse 18, 
So he is first in everything. For God, God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Jesus Christ, this man was not just a special prophet or an anointed religious leader. He was God himself in the flesh. The fullness, the entirety of God, all of who God is, is present in Jesus Christ. And he is the one who has purchased our salvation. For as verse 20 says again, we read it earlier, but it says, and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. The one through whom all things came into the world is also the one who allowed creation to kill him so that he could reconcile it to himself. That is who Jesus is. He is the one through whom and for whom heaven and earth exist. The one who is supreme over all creation, over all new creation. The one who existed before anything else and in whom all things hold together and the one through whom all things are being reconciled because he took on flesh and he died for us. That is the foundational picture Paul paints to the Colossians for who Jesus is. That's the one he actually has feared that they're drifting away from. And so he wants to show them, this is who Jesus is. Why would you look somewhere else? And this is the good news that the church for 2,000 years has stood on and that we need to stand on here. So let me ask you, is this what we are standing on? Guys, do we believe that this is true? Do we see that Jesus is this glorious, this remarkable, this sufficient that we believe that all reality finds its source, its goal, and its redemption in him? Do we recognize that all of life, all existence is not just through him, but for him? Think about the implications for that. We often think about Christianity, about following Jesus as kind of doing, dealing with like the spiritual parts of our life. You know, we come here on Sundays, we kind of spiritual things that we're interested in, but the rest of our lives are kind of distinct from Jesus Christ. Well, you got to see that the way this poem functions with its two parts of Christ being over all creation, over new creation, shows us that that is just not true. That's a false dichotomy. Jesus is over it all, and he cares about it all, and he's redeeming it all. Every aspect of each one of our lives is for him. It's through him and for him of our world. Everything should live to give him praise. I'm a pastor but I'm not distinctly doing God's work. Well, well, when you go to your jobs, maybe later today or tomorrow as a medical worker, teacher, counselor, accountant, lawyer, architect, graphic designer, stay-at-home parent, or construction worker, that somehow you've kind of like exited the domain of God. That I do God's spiritual work, but you do secular work. That's what the Enlightenment taught us. That's never what the Bible has said. They've said all things are before him. And God cares about all things. You serve, we all serve Christ wherever he has placed us and at all times. Do we think of Jesus as that big? Do we think of his role as truly over all things and that he cares about all things so that every ounce, every second of your life matters to him? For his death on the cross was not only for me and you and our souls. It was not just to forgive us of our sins and offer us the hope of resurrection. It is that but it's to bring all creation to himself, to redeem and reconcile all things to himself. Our personal redemption is part of a larger plan that God is fulfilling through Jesus Christ because that's who he is. He's the God over all things. 
He's the creator of all things. He's the purpose of all things. He's the savior of all things for he died and rose again to redeem all things. And that includes you. Because even though he is this big and this glorious, he loves you. Do we believe this? That's, this is the good news. This is the gospel. Paul was spreading his day. It was going over the whole world. And today it is vital for us to grasp this as well. Because listen, if, if we don't, if we don't think of Jesus in this way, then of course, of course, we are going to think that we need something else in addition to Jesus for our salvation or to live a good life. Or what I think will probably actually happen, what's more prevalent today, is if we don't think of Jesus as this exalted and loving way, where we see him as both the God who's over all things, but has poured in himself for us and given himself to us so that we see that the message of the gospel is that the God is the source and goal of all history and creation has given himself to us. If we don't think of Jesus in that way, he's just our savior who gets rid of our sin or just loves us, but that's it. Then we will inevitably look to the philosophies, to the ideologies, to the cultural swathes of the world or the religious disciplines to dictate how we live and to make us feel assured. We will think we need more. We'll think we need more than Christ, that Jesus is maybe good enough for our heart our spiritual life, but we need more. We need money. We need success. We need sex. We need comfort. We need a spouse or children. We need something more. And of course, those things are not bad. They're good things. But the message of the gospel, the message that the church has been proclaiming that we need to continue to proclaim is that in Christ, through him, we have been given all we need. Through him, you have been brought into God's presence. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not far from God. Even when you sin. Okay, sometimes we think of repentance as like feeling bad for a long time and then we're close to God. Guys, the remarkable thing is that repentance is just to turn and realize you're still right there because of what God has done for you. You are in his presence. You are holy. You are blameless. You stand before him without a single fault, without missing anything, because that's what God has done for you. Through Jesus, the first line of Psalm 23 is true. This is a psalm that's meant so much to me through my life. But think about the first line of this psalm, one of the most famous passages in all the scriptures. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What does that mean? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. If you have God as your shepherd, you lack nothing. Through Jesus, we can sing what we sung earlier. There's no one else. No one else for me, for you, not but Jesus, that we should live to give him praise. Because of what God has done for you, for us in Jesus Christ, we can sing what we're about to sing in response to this sermon. In response really to not to my words, but to God's words, to God's action that he's done for us in Jesus. And this is the same song that we responded to last week, but I want to just read the first verse of this song. And I want us to reflect and really think about what we are affirming together because this is true. What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. There's nothing else he is to give you because that's how glorious Jesus is. There's no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy. He's my righteousness and freedom. He's my steadfast love. He's my deep and boundless peace. 
To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. The thing with this next line, oh, how strange and divine. I can sing, you can sing. No matter what you are going through right now, we can all sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Brothers and sisters, do we believe that? Because the crazy, audacious claim of the scriptures that changed the world is that that is true through Jesus Christ. That every single one of us can stand up and sing, what gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There's no more for heaven now to give. Oh, how strange and divine the church can stand together and sing, all is ours, but not because of us because of Christ in us, because of what God has done. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for a message, a gospel that is so much more remarkable than we would ever even dare hope for. Father, I I'm so aware as I preach this sermon, as I pray right now, of my inadequacy to convince anyone of this, to even convince myself. And so I pray right now, God, that you and your mercy and your grace would send your spirits to comfort us with your love and show us Jesus. I want to pray, Lord, especially for my brothers and sisters in this room right now, Lord, who feel as if they just don't know this love. They don't know this remarkable reality that you've given to them. They feel distant from you. Would you please, mercifully, God, show them Christ right now. Show them your love, and they know it so deeply. And to those of us, Father, who are clinging to aspects of our lives or to parts of this world that we think that we want in order to have a good life, that we're looking to things in our lives in order to feel assured that we're good, we're okay. Lord, may you break those idols that we might know Jesus that we might know the glory of what he has done for us. Father, may we as a church not just sing these words, not just even think they're true. May we, may we feel them deep down in our bones that this gift of grace is so sufficient, there's no more for heaven to give. May we know it. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.